Hi friends, welcome to Interviews, Voices of Our Herbal Elders. This is my opportunity to talk to some of my dearest friends, people who have not only influenced my herbal work, but also have had a major influence on the revitalization of American herbalism. Most of us began our herbal work around the same time, in the early 1970s and 80s, when herbalism was still mostly underground, a place where plants actually thrived quite well. I love hearing people tell their herbal stories of how they began their herbal work, who and what inspired them, their favorite plant and healing stories, and I felt that others would be interested in hearing them as well. In fact, I felt it was important to capture these stories before this generation of elders passed on, as we're all destined to do. My welcome and esteemed guest today is David Winston. David is not only a well-known herbalist, he is also a dear friend of mine. He's trained in Chinese, Western eclectic, and Southeastern herbal medicine, and he combines these traditions seamlessly in his practice. He's been in clinical practice for 47 years and is the founder and dean of the David Winston Center for Herbal Studies, which offers an extensive two-year clinical training program. He's also founder and president of Herbalist and Alchemist, one of our really well-known herbal manufacturing companies, and he just produces incredible, excellent products. David's the author of several of my favorite herb books, including the uh, author of the immensely popular Adaptogens, Herbs for Strength, Stamina, and Stress Relief. It actually was the first book to come out on adaptogens and really introduced this amazing group of herbs to the world. David's won numerous awards for his herbal work, including an honorary doctorate from the National University of Natural Medicine. And really, there's so many more things that David's done, but for a complete bio, you can go to our website. David, thank you so much for joining me today. It's really an honor and a privilege to have you here. Well, Rosemary, it is just a, I, I could say the same. It's an honor, it's a privilege, and I'm thrilled to be your guest today and to have a chance to talk. Tell stories, reminisce. <laughs> well, let's get going. You know, I always love hearing the story of the aha moment when the plants uh, saved you or called you into this magical green world. Do you mind just sharing a little bit about that with us? I'd be happy to, although it's kind of a convoluted story. I wouldn't call it one moment. It's, it's a, like a series of moments. And so I have to start off by talking about being a really young child. And um, at, at our age, we are too old to have been diagnosed with all the things that people get diagnosed with today. So yes, yeah. I would have been diagnosed as having ADHD, except it didn't exist when I was a kid and dyslexia. I had all sorts of learning disabilities. And on top of that, I'm sort of a challenging combination on a personality level of being a shy introvert. I was the little kid walking around with a sign on my back saying, kick me, beat me up and steal my lunch. Oh. And by the way, all, all of that didn't indeed happen. And so I found people somewhat difficult and challenging and literally frightening. But 
rocks and plants and trees were really nice. And by the <laughs> way, when I did play, it was mostly with girls because they were nice. Yes. Yeah. And they would let me play with them. So yeah. I spent an inordinate amount of time as a young child in the woods. And we had a beautiful farm in woods right behind our home. Our home was very sort of urban, suburban kind of home. But right behind us was this really beautiful old farm. Oh. And I just spent hours and hours, days and days, more often by myself in the woods, sometimes playing with other kids, but often by myself. And I don't, I, I mean, I have memories of this. I can't say that there's a specific moment, but I remember making stone circles around our house. It took me weeks to make. Yeah. Uh, I remember making medicine in my backyard, having a plastic tub and picking plants and putting them in there and mashing them up and adding water to it. And I remember my mother saying to me, what are you doing? And I said, I'm making medicine. I didn't know the name of the plant that I was picking then, but I know the name of the plant now. It's called plantain. Oh my and God. I would put it on like I'd get bug bites. Nobody taught me this. The yeah. plants taught me this. Yeah. And so fast forward, I continued to spend all throughout my childhood a lot of time in the woods. We moved to different places, but there were always woods nearby, which were my refuge. I yeah. just loved being in the woods. And so around the age of 11, I went to camp one summer. We didn't have much money. So it was like a, not a sleepaway camp, but a day camp. Uh, it was the only time my parents ever sent me to camp for a couple of weeks. And someone, one of the instructors, showed us this plant and let us taste it. And it was marvelous. Oh. Um, I was never big on sweet things. I liked sour things, lemon lime flavor. And this plant had this wonderful sour taste. And I'm sure he told us what it was called, but I didn't remember. Yeah. And I spent the next two years trying to figure out what this plant was. It turns out it was wood sorrel. I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> that was that was like my first, beyond like edible berries, I knew like blackberries and, and raspberries and things like that that grew in the woods. But beyond that, that was really my first edible plant. And from that, I got a book and it was called Stalking the Wild Asparagus oh by Yule Given. <laughs> and after reading that book, I got his other book, Stalking the Healthful Herbs. Yeah. And literally, I fell in love with this idea that I could walk out into the fields, into the woods, anywhere, and find plants that were medicinal, that were edible, that had economic uses. And I fell head over heels <laughs> in love, not only with plants, but the idea that they were there and they could help us and we could learn from them. Yeah. And that for me is the start. And you said, you know, many of us started in the, in the 60s and uh, the 70s and 80s. For me, it was the late 60s. And I just, it was never looked back. And it's funny because when I first started doing this, people would say to me, well, what do you do? And I'd say, well, I'm an herbalist. <laughs> and people would, like I told them I was an alien from another planet. And they'd say, well, you mean like spices? And I probably should have said yes, but I'd say no. And one person said to me one time, they said, you mean like potpourri? 
And I said, no. And they were just shaking their head going, poor misguided youth. Why would you waste your time studying something that people did 100 years ago? Nobody does that anymore. But again, I had fallen in love with this. And it didn't matter to me whether it was popular. It didn't matter whether anybody else was interested. This was my passion at this point. And I feel so blessed because I have spent literally my entire teenage years through now doing what I love to do. I feel so blessed that I found my vocation and advocation so early in life. And the world eventually kind of caught up because people like you and so many of our other wonderful elders, you know, started spreading the word to the point where now herbal medicine is much better known than it certainly was in the late 1960s. I always tell people when I first started studying herbs, all my friends were interested in one herb and I was interested in all the other ones. And the funny thing is that one herb is probably even more popular today. I know, isn't that amazing? Oh my God, talking about full circle, right? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's that's just so heartwarming, David. You know, I think it's a story that's very familiar to so many of our hearts too. You know, like so many of us felt somewhat alienated as children, you know, all in different ways. I know in yours, there was a lot of physical things that were confronting you and you had what were big challenges. And yet, you know, you found the plants or probably more likely the plants found you, you know, it's such a beautiful story. Yeah. And I have to say, you said it was such a blessing for you. I want to say also it was such a blessing for the world that that you said yes to the plants because you've contributed so much in these past 50 plus years. So, yeah. So, um, so is there a particular teacher or teachers that most influenced your work and maybe inspired you on your path as an herbalist? Any that you particularly want to share with us about? Absolutely. So I have been fortunate to have a number of really significant teachers. Some of them are plants. <laughs> Some of them are patients. Okay. But in my career, I had an aunt and an uncle who taught me some things, which was really fortunate. But I would say that the person who I think I owe the most to as an herbalist was one of the people I consider one of the three great herbalists of the 20th century. And those are um, William Lasassier, who I studied with, yeah. uh, Michael Moore, oh, yeah. and yourself. Oh, really? And of course, you go beyond, they, they, you know, uh, William and, and, and Michael have um, passed. But what William introduced me to the idea of, because, you know, before him, the first person I took classes from was Dr. John Christopher. Oh, yeah. And I honored Dr. Christopher because Dr. Christopher kept herbal medicine alive at its absolute nadir, at its lowest point. He yeah. was there teaching classes. And I took up a few classes with him and it was very much, you know, this herb for this kind of condition. Yeah. And then in 1976, I stumbled into William Lasassier's work and fortunately later became friends with William. And William is probably the least known. He didn't publish widely, but William or Willie, as people also called him, was sort of the... First off, I believe he was one of the few people I've ever met in my life who was an out-and-out genius. I mean, he was 
astonishing. And I still to this day have no idea where he learned what he knew. It, it, I don't know what, yeah, did it come out of the ether? It certainly didn't come out of books. And William introduced me to the concept of energetics. And one of the things I always say to my students, I say, how many of you want to be a good herbalist? And everybody raises their hand. And I go, wrong answer. If you're going to be an herbalist, but the reality is, if you're going to be an herbalist, a nurse, a carpenter, a car mechanic, a farmer, don't be content to be just good or good enough. Do your best to be great. Now, none of us achieve that in the sense that who's to measure? But you try to do your best every day and to constantly learn and grow and do better. And every day is an opportunity to learn something new. And so anyway, if you want to be great, in my opinion, if you want to be a great herbalist, there are a few skills that are really vital. One is understanding herbal energetics, two, differential diagnosis, three, the concept of synergy, because that allows you, you know, Hippocrates is believed to have said more than 2,000 years ago, it's more important to know the person that has the disease than the disease yeah, the person so has. True. Well, either he said it or some one of his students said it, whoever said it, they were correct. <laughs> and so the idea is, in my opinion, great herbalists treat people, not diseases. Yeah. And so if you're, you know, if you just treat, for instance, something like depression as a single entity, your results are never going to be very good. But if you treat the person who is depressed, understanding the underlying energetics and pathophysiology of why they are depressed, your ability to help them increases exponentially. Yeah. So William used the concept of herbal energetics. The only Chinese herbs I knew before I met him were probably Asian ginseng and what everybody called dong kui, dong gui. Um, but he introduced me to herbs like processed romania and white peony and astragalus and wow. goji berry and just all of these things that I had never even heard of. He also created, well, first off, he was a brilliant diagnostician and he had all sorts of fascinating ways of doing diagnosis, some of which I still use today, some of which like he was also into palmistry and numerology and and and. That's stuff I don't work with. Not that it doesn't have validity. It's just not something that I personally work with. But he also created this system for creating individualized formulas for people called the triune or triangle system. It takes a little bit of time to learn, but I still teach it to my students in my two-year program. And they learn it over a period of about the last five months of class. And when they first start, they're literally pulling their their hair out of their head going, oh my God, I'll never figure this out. Some students have called it herbal Sudoku uh, <laughs> or 3D chess. But once you understand the concept, in, in, from, from, from thinking, I'll never figure this out, to three or four months later, 90 plus percent of my students are doing very good to excellent work. And by the time they're done, this your program, most everybody's doing excellent yes. work. And it allows design a formula for a person that is literally like a tailored suit of clothing. You're looking at the whole person, their energetics, all the different issues going on in their body, and you're being able to put it together, not just by throwing a bunch of stuff together, but by doing it in a rational manner that is also looking at the energetics, meaning there are herbs that are strengthening and nourishing, herbs that are tonifying, herbs that are eliminators, and putting it together in this really coherent way. And so luckily, when William introduced me to this system, what he did is he created this initial list. You've probably seen his initial list, very, very sparse, 
of you know what each system and what herbs do within that system. So whether it's a builder, neutral eliminator. Well, I took that and kind of ran with it. And before William passed away, I showed him what I had done with it. Really? And he was absolutely thrilled. He was because not too many people continue to do it. Certainly there are other people in our community, you know other people as well, Kathy Cavill and other people who are familiar with the system, yeah. um, but not that many people who really work with it because what he gave us was sort of the seeds of it. And I only found this out from Kathy recently that she learned it from him in 1975. He actually created it that year. I learned it in 1976, uh, the following year. And I, I had no idea that it literally was less, probably less than a year old or about a year old when I learned it. Um, but it, again, it is a brilliant system. So for me, William is one of those people whose shoulders I stand on but again, I've had so many incredible teachers and whether it is sitting in on classes from our dear friend, Michael Moore, whether it is going to classes of some of the newer, younger herbalists and sitting there going, you know, this person's like, you know, 32 years old. And I'm sitting there going, oh my God, they yeah. are brilliant. You know, it took me 32 years just to learn what they're talking about. And they're already there, you know. Uh, and, and one of the beautiful things for me as a teacher is you're, you're trying to help our students to surpass us, not to be, you know, pale reflections of us, but to surpass us, to take what we have shared with them, which our elders shared with us and take it further and make it grow bigger and more beautiful and more helpful. And that's what I see happening. And, and I have to say, Rosemary, that one of the other people that has been in incredible influence to me in my life is you. Um, and I don't mean to embarrass you, but you may not remember this. We probably do, but we met in 1981 <laughs> and we met in Brighton Bush Hot Springs at the first um, uh, uh, Brighton Bush uh, herbal retreat from the California School of Herbal Studies. And I knew who you were. You didn't know who I was at the time. And I had heard about this because this was going to be the first big, big herb gathering. There had been a couple smaller ones in California that I was unaware of, but this was going to be the first yeah. like, big thing. And there were no other herb conferences. And today there's herb conferences all over the United States and all over the world. But then there were none. And here I am. I'm on the East Coast. And for a very long time, I thought, I was not correct about this, but I thought I was the only herbalist on the East Coast. I really did for a very long time. And of course, what I later found out was there were lots of herbalists on the East Coast, but they were mostly traditional herbalists in rural communities, serving their rural communities. And they weren't really that well known outside of the community. So you had people like Catfish Gray in West Virginia, and you had Tommy Bass in Alabama, and you had Del Dawson, our dear friend in Vermont. You had Evelyn Snook in Pennsylvania. So these people yeah. existed, but they were known locally, with the exception of Tommy Bass, who had a bit more of a reputation. They, you know, they didn't have an international uh, following or even a national following. They just were known in their local communities. So when I heard about this herb conference, I was like, I'm going. And if I'm not mistaken, that was probably only the second or third time I'd ever been on a plane. <laughs> and I fly out, I flew out to 
to Oregon and our late dear friend, Cascade Anderson Geller, uh, picked me up and I stayed with her and we had a whole lot of fun when picking a hypericum and just wonderful time. And we went to Brightonbush. And I remember there are 70 of us sitting in the big ring. All right. And we're sitting in a semi, we're sitting on the floor, cross-legged, and there's 70 of us in this long, oblong circle. And I'm sitting there looking around going, these are my people. And it was just the most awesome experience because I was so, felt so isolated on the East Coast with nobody to share my passion with. And it was just, it was just brilliant. And that is because of you. And one of the things I will say about you that is absolutely true, you know, it's not that hard to be a visionary. What's really hard is to be a visionary who makes their dreams come true. And you have done that repeatedly. And I honestly consider you sort of like the fairy godmother of the American herbal (laughs) renaissance. And so in 1981, I already was teaching here in the East Coast. But in 1981, I show up at Brighton Bush, and you didn't know me. Again, I knew who you were. And um, one of the teachers, Nam Singh, Chinese herbalist and and Taoist, he didn't show up. <laughs> and so I came up to you, and again, you didn't know who I was. I said, "Excuse me, Rosemary, um, I know Chinese herbs, and that's what the class is supposed to be about. I, I could fill in if you like." And you said, sure. <laughs> so that was, that was like my first teaching gig, sort of outside of my local area. And the next year, you invited me to come back and teach. And so I thank you and I honor you. I, you know, it's like when you send me the email, when I do this, I was like, yes, yes, yes. Uh, because you gave me that opportunity. Yeah. And you did it and you everything you do with such heart, with such grace, with such beauty. And I just love that. And I love you. So thank you. Thank you. It's so, so fun to hear those stories. You took me right back to that early Brighton Bush. And I actually clearly remember you coming up. You know, the part that I don't remember is you're asking to teach a class on Chinese medicine. But what I do remember is that enthusiasm and that passion that I saw radiating off of you. So there was no way I wasn't going to say yes, right? I could, I recognize it. Here's another plant-loving herbalist, right? And definitely bring him into the fold. So thank you for saying yes to that. But um, listen, do you have, I know you must have many of them, but can you just like off the top of your head, think of maybe a favorite herbal story that you'd like to share with the listeners? just about the plants or <laughs> it's kind of a broad question, but I, no, 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 I, I absolutely do. It's actually two, two connected stories. So my uncle who lived in North Carolina and I got to spend some summers with him when I was uh, in my late teens and I had an aunt that lived there as well. And they were traditional herbalists um, in, in their own way. Uh, that wasn't their primary thing, but anyway, my uncle had always told me that if I didn't know what herb to use for somebody, I should walk through the woods and the fields thinking about the person that needed that herb. And plants would tell me that they could help by shaking. And I was more of an herbalist than my uncle was. And I always thought, well, that's interesting, but I never did it. 
I never used it. I always thought I knew what was, you know, right or for somebody, even when I was totally wrong. At least, you know, I thought I had some clue. And sometimes I didn't. Sometimes I clearly did not. So one day, many years later, probably de a decade or two later, I'm at a friend's in Churchville, Virginia. And I'm going to be teaching that weekend for them. And they, they had an old farmhouse, very, very simple. And they didn't have indoor plumbing, then outhouse. So it's in the morning and I get up and I'm just wearing my T-shirt and a pair of underwear. And, and I walk outside to go to the outhouse. And there's a big sign on it says, out of order. <laughs> and I'm like, whoa, <laughs> okay, this is bad. And I'm looking around and I really have to go. And I'm looking for a place to walk into the woods and there's poison ivy everywhere. Now, there are worse places to get poison ivy than on the soles of your feet and between your toes, but not many. And I'm, and I'm sensitive to poison ivy, so I'm kind of like topping foot to foot going, I don't know what to do. And all of a sudden, out of the corner of my eye, I see this bush shaking. And I look at it and I think, is there a bird in there? Is there a squirrel, a rabbit, whatever? And I walk over expecting something to scurry away or fly away. And there's nothing. And it's shaking. And I realize there's no wind. And I also look down and realize it's the only place there's no poison ivy. So I go in, take care of what I need to do. And from that moment, I have believed if you have a need, the plants will respond. So... Again, several, uh, another decade or so later, I'm at my old farm in Northwestern New Jersey, and I was out by the barn. And it was a typical August, New Jersey summer day, hot, humidity about 122%, not that there is such a thing. And I'm sitting in the barn in the shade. There's not a breeze to be had. You wish there was, you know, it was just still and humid. And I'm thinking about this patient of mine who I'd been working with for a little over a year. And she came to me, she was in her early 60s, and she had glomerular nephritis, which is a chronic degenerative kidney disease. And uh, I had, she had been to, you know, all sorts of nephrologists and she had been to different people. And I had put her on a Chinese formula called Romania 6. And this formula, you can kind of plateau people who have kidney disease and kind of keep them from getting worse. But it will work for about a year, maybe a year and a half, if you're lucky, two years, and then it stops working. And she had been at about 18% kidney function for, for a year, a year and two or three months. And all of a sudden, her, her uh, EGFR goes from 18 to 16. And at that point, I knew time was up. You know, it wasn't going to work anymore. And I'm trying to figure out what to do. I couldn't, I couldn't think of anybody to refer her yeah. to. I, I, and you know, as a clinician, you want to help the people that you're working with. That's our, it's our yeah. job. But also, you know, you, you feel terrible for somebody yeah. who's suffering and you, you want to help them. And I'm thinking about her and thinking, what can we do? You know, and all of a sudden I look up and I see I have this big nettle patch and the nettles are shaking. <laughs> so what did I think? I think, is there a bird in there? Is there a squirrel? Is there a rabbit? Is there a rack? You know, I, I'm back to the thinking it's some kind of an animal. And so again, I will stand up. I walk over expecting a bird to fly out or a rabbit to run away. Nothing. And the plants are shaking. And again, there's not a breeze anywhere. And in my head, I hear, oh, God. Yeah. I can help her. And I'm like, 
and I'm looking at the nettle plant, looking at the leaves, and this is August is not to get time yeah. to gather nettle leaves. You know, the leaves are looking, yeah. you know, they're they're starting to yellow. They don't look good at all. And I think to myself, nettle leaf is great medicine. I love nettle leaves, but it's not going to help glomerular nephritis. And then I hear again, oh my God. the seeds pods kind of, not, it, they don't really rustle. They don't make much of a noise, but they come in and I hear not my leaves, oh. my seeds. At this point, my jaws probably hit the <laughs> ground and I'm like, no, I'm like, okay. And I'd never heard of using nettle seed for anything. Time, yeah. Never. You had read someplace that in Europe it was used like when people, and there was famine, people would use it as an emergency food. So I knew it wasn't, it was potentially edible. Yeah, it wasn't going right. to be harmful. So I went back to the house, I got some tobacco. I came back, offered the tobacco as a ritual gift to the plant, wearing gloves, harvested a whole bunch of the seed, made a tincture out of it. In a couple of weeks, it's ready. I call up my patient and I said, listen, I've got this thing. It's very experimental, but if you'd like to try it, I'll give it to you. And she said, look, You've helped me more than anybody else has helped me. I trust you. I'll try it. So I gave her some of the nettle seed tincture. And in about six or eight weeks, she's back to 18% wow. kidney function. The next test, which is about three months later, she's up to 20% wow. kidney function. It's amazing. A year and a half, two years later, she is at 28% kidney function. Her, the, this is a quote. She told me her doctor said to her, he says, what are you doing? And she says, well, I'm taking these herbs. She says, I don't want to know. Awesome. Just keep yeah. doing it. These herbs kept her between 26 and 28% kidney function for like 16 wow. or 18 years. Then she passed away, but she didn't pass away wow. from degenerative yeah. kidney That's disease. Amazing. All right. And so that is how I learned about, you know, because we talked about great teachers before. That's how I learned about the use of nettle seed. Um, and it wasn't, you know, I, I don't use the word I discovered it. I didn't discover it. I just, just listened. And the plant told me what it could do. And the amazing thing is that was the first case. The second case came along about six months later. I treated somebody, and by the time I had 10 cases where eight out of 10 had responded, I now know that, for instance, nettle seed does not work for um, polycystic kidney disease, um, and it can be useful for things like diabetic nephropathy, but you have to really get the diabetes under control if you want it to be of benefit. Um, but it's remarkable, and it works not only in humans, it works on dogs. It works on cats. I cannot tell you how many stories I have heard of people saying they had a dog or a cat who was dying uh, from kidney failure. Um, they'd stop eating, stop drinking, and people started just you know, taking it and dripping it in their mouth. And they recover and live yeah, for years. And I, I have many, 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 many case histories of using this plant at this point. And it's just, it's a remarkable medicine. And so, you know, some of the best things I've the ever plants. learned about plants. Yeah, that's such plants. a great point. You know, and it's always interesting to me too, about how, you know, people think that we study and learn this information. We definitely do study and learn a lot from one another. There's no doubt about it, you know, and how we trade and, you know, 
inspire one another to learn. But really, when we learn to listen to the plants, it's medicine of the earth, right? And the plants can teach us, and they have been for centuries, you know, that's one of the things I always like to point out is that we have these various traditions, yes, but really the tradition that we most study at is the tradition of the earth. It's the earth's medicine meant for all humankind to use. And herbalists just, you know, we're really good at dispensing, dispersing that information, but it's coming from the earth. It belongs to all of us, right? It's not really for one group or nationality of people. It's all, you know, kind of, a, uh, I think a huge translation of how we listen to the earth and how it speaks to us. But that, that's a beautiful story, David, on so many levels. Thank you for sharing. You know, it brings me up, you, I mean, you, what you've just shared is definitely a powerful example of how the plants heal. But I was just wondering, do you have another story, like a, a, one of those miracle healing stories that you've seen the plants do? I always, I always feel it's like witnessing for the plants. You know, I love hearing those stories. So if you have a favorite plant, you know, kind of just one of those healing stories, another one to share with you, I'd share with us. I'd love to hear it. I'm sure our listeners would as well. Well. I have a formula that I call grief relief. And this is a formula. And, you know, as you mentioned earlier, I have an herb company and, you know, most of the formulas are formulas I designed. I didn't design this formula. The plants told me this formula. And the formula is very simple. Most of my formulas are more complex than this. This only has three ingredients. And it is mimosa bark, which is hukwam bi, uh, collective happiness peel. It's a Chinese herb. But mimosa, uh, the albizia juliper scent, has become an introduced plant. And that's one of the cool things. You know, people, you were talking about, you know, the traditions belong to everyone. Well, so many of the plants that are common here in the U.S. are not native to here. They've been introduced. And so... With them, we learn about new medicines from other places, whether we go back to that tradition or we gain it from the plants. And so mimosa bark is the single greatest mood elevator that I have ever come across in my life that's illegal. Um, you know, you give somebody mimosa bark and they walk around and they're like, just this big smile on their face. And you go up to them and you say, well, how, why are you so happy? And you go, I have no idea. My face hurts so smiling. Now, I will say, do not give mimosa bark okay. to people who are bipolar. It can precipitate a manic episode. And I've seen it several times for people who we didn't know were bipolar, but we found out. <clears throat> so, um, but it's this phenomenal mood elevator. And to that is added fragrant rose petals. It has to be fragrant rose petals. So if you have roses and they don't have an odor, then you can't use them. But if you have cabbage roses, damask roses, uh, apothecary roses, beach roses, which smell wonderful. You ever see those with the giant, giant rose hips? Those are lovely. Anyway, we're not using the roses. We're using the fragrant rose petals. We dry them. And then the last ingredient is hawthorn berries and flowers. They're combined. And so grief relief I use for people who have chronic grief, sadness, broken hearts, and anybody who tells you a broken heart is not a real thing, you look at, and I've seen this multiple times in my practice, you have a couple who've been together for many years and, you know, decades and decades, and one of them passes away and the other one's in really good health for their age. And within mm-hmm. six months or a year, they pass away. Or another example is another of our 
great herbal elders, Bill Mitchell, who his son died and he passed hours. away within yeah within hours. hours. Yes. You know, and mm -hmm. he died of a broken heart. And what I can say about that, that specific case, but what I can say is that broken hearts can be treated if you have time. And so I use it for broken hearts. I use it for what today would be called PTSD. Now, remember with PTSD, this formula, it's going to allow things to come up. So you need to make sure yes. that the person you're giving it to is in um, therapy with a good therapist, somebody they really trust. But it will allow things to uh, come up. It helps to prevent reinstatement of fear memories. It's just an amazing thing. And I also use it for what I call stagnant depression. And stagnant depression kind of overlaps with PTSD, but it's my own definition. So if you look in the DSM-5, you won't find stagnant depression. Uh, I coined the term. And But what stagnant depression is, is yeah. situational depression. So something bad happens. And we're not here to judge, you know, what's bad for one person may be not a big deal for somebody else. But something for you, for that person is traumatic, happens yeah. and they get stuck there. And that event becomes the sun and you are now orbiting yeah. that trauma. And you don't have the strength to escape the gravitational pull of that trauma. And so I use it for stagnant depression. And it is an amazing feeling to be working with somebody who has been stuck in their depression, in their sadness, in their grief for years. Now, I'm not talking about giving this to somebody who's going through a normal grieving process. Grief is a normal therapeutic and emotional spiritual process that we shouldn't avoid. Too many people just, I don't want to feel that. But my experience is, and I, I, I not say I'm right, but my belief is that in life, there are two main times when we grow. When we're in love and when we're in pain. And so it is an opportunity for growth, even though it's not a pleasant one and none of us look for it, it is an opportunity. So it's not like we're using it for somebody who's in a normal grieving process, but this is for somebody who's stuck. They're ready to move on and yeah. they're still stuck there. And to have somebody who's been stuck literally in place for five years, 10 years, 20 years, and you give them this and all of a sudden out of the blue, you know, after a few months, they call you up and go, you know what? And you're like, no, I'm thinking of taking a yoga yes. class. Yes. yes. You know, and you can just see that, that, you know, that, that pain, that suffering, that grief starting to break away and open up and then coming back into life, which is normally what happens with, with um, yeah. situational depression. But for some people, they just get stuck there. And so that's what I call stagnant depression. And I, that's where I use that formula. And it's just brilliant. And I thank the plants every day. I thank you, David, because that. I know when I was going through the deepest heartbreak of my entire life, unfathomable tragedy that happened to my family, you sent me bottles of the grief relief. And it, was, it definitely was so helpful. That and flower essences and the love of friends is what pulled me back from you know, really the brink of despair. So really, thank you. It's a beautiful, beautiful formula. Yeah. And I love, again, how you relate it back to the plants. The plants are the ones who showed up and told you to, to, you know, to use them, to put them together. Beautiful. Well, yeah. So, you know, it's always fun to ask what your favorite plant allies are. The, those plants, I'm sure you have several and, you know, just the ones that show up for you and have and 
Yeah, what are they? That's a hard question. We've already talked about nettle seed. We've talked about the mimosa, the hawthorn, the rose. I love roses. I just, I, I, I'm head over heels in love with roses. There are so many. I mean, you know, whether it's the humble plantain, which is probably the first medicinal plant I ever knew, even if I didn't understand what it was at the time. But and I'm, by the way, I'm talking about the broadleaf plantain, although the landscape, I'm sure, worked perfectly well in the same ways. But, you know, whether it is plantain, I, I, I will say I have a real affinity for weeds. And the, the ones I love the best are the weedy plants that are rather ubiquitous. So we could talk about a burdock or a dandelion or a nettles. And not only are they everywhere, but different parts of the plant do different things. So literally you can get three medicines from one plant. So you'll have something like burdock where the root is used, the seed is used, and the leaf is used, and they all do different things. Plus, the central stalk and the roots or young roots are edible. Or you have nettle, which you have the leaf, the root, and the seed, all of which do different things. Plus, of course, the young leaves are edible. Or you have, you know, so, so plants like that, for me, are just such... They give us so much. And yet, culturally, and I'm talking about sort of dominant culture, the dominant culture looks at these and they're weeds and we need to use herbicides and get rid of them. And here are these plants yeah. that are so giving and so amazing and are just there for us to use in all sorts of ways to help not only nourish our bodies, but to alleviate our illnesses, to prevent disease. So I, I just have a a very special place in my heart for these sort of weedy adventurous plants dandelion you know again the dandelion leaf has one activity dandelion root another dandelion flower another the crowns are edible the roots you can use to make quote-unquote dandelion coffee i mean there's again just so many uses of these things and as a culture they're just so unappreciated so those to me those to me are really special plants and then you mentioned earlier about adaptogens. Of course, you know, I, I wrote a book on adaptogens and, and they are a, a grouping of plants that number one, well, one of the reasons I wrote the book is because they're not well understood. And a lot of people have this idea that adaptogens are good for stress. Yeah, but so yeah. are nervines and so are, you know, anxiolytics. And there's lots of plants that are useful for stress. And we don't have time to get into what is the actual definition of an adaptogen, but it's more complex than the original definition proposed in 1969, which is more than, you know, 50 years old. That original definition was very simplistic and, and numerous plants fit that mold. But the, the current definition, again, is we have a better understanding of what they do and how they work. But the fact that there are plants that can help us to deal with stressors and create what's called a nonspecific state of resistance to stress, meaning it doesn't matter whether it's environmental stress, temperature stress, noise stress, psychological stress, it helps us to respond more appropriately, more effectively uh, to those things and helps reduce a lot of the adverse effects of stress. And so, you know, most of our adaptogens, most of our adaptogens either come from India or China. And that is not because 
the only plants that are adaptogens grow in India and China, it's because those two cultures have ancient medical traditions, Ayurveda and traditional Chinese medicine, that have been using plants in a very, not in, just in a sort of um, heroic kind of bleedum, purgum, and pucum kind of tradition, but have looked at plants as gentle, harmonizing remedies for thousands of years. So they explore their materia medica looking for yes. plants like this. In the West, we don't have those ancient traditions as much. I mean, there are native traditions, but they're not as widely known. So here we have these, these ancient traditions. So that's why one of the reasons why a lot of those plants come from there. But that doesn't mean there aren't North American adaptogenic plants or potentially South American adaptogenic. They, they're probably adaptogenic plants in every environment. There are not probably a whole lot of them, though. Uh, at least not that fit the, uh, the current definition, but the idea that there are plants that can help us this way. So, for instance, um, I will mention just a couple of them very briefly. And the reason I mention these oh. is because they're easy to grow, meaning no matter where you are, you can grow these plants. So, like, for instance, one of our, our, our native uh, adaptogenic plants is American ginseng. But American ginseng is yeah. not so easy to grow. It can be grown. For without a doubt, it's a very you know long growing plant. It can be grown, but it's not so easy. But there are plants, and they're not native to North America, but they certainly can be grown. You have one plant which is ubiquitous in India, yeah. which is holy basil. And holy, if you can grow garden basil, you can grow holy basil. Now be aware that garden basil doesn't do what holy basil does. There's also a plant being sold as as temperate Tulsi. Or uh, some people, a lot of people think it's holy basil. It's not. It's African basil. It doesn't have the same activity. But the holy basil from India, which is a sacred plant, um, is an amazing plant. It is a carminative, so it's good for digestive upset. It uh, lowers blood sugar levels. It has anxiolytic and antidepressant activity. It is an adaptogen. It helps to reduce the negative effects of stress. I mean, and again, if you can grow basil, you can grow, you can grow holy basil. So it's plants like that, that literally you can live in an apartment and you could grow it in a pot on your balcony. You don't need, you know, acreage. You don't need a big garden. You could grow it as a house plant. Another one, this one I wouldn't grow as a, ha a house plant, is a Chinese herb called Jiao Gulat. The herb of immortality, and it's native to the border right between southern China and Vietnam. And it's well known in that area, but it was not huh. well known outside of that area. And this herb is in the uh, cucumber family, Curcubitaceae, and it is very easy to grow. I have some growing here. And in fact, if you're in a place like North Carolina, really? it stays green all year round. Here, it back in the in the winter and comes back in in the spring and it grows pretty profusely it could actually probably become weedy and there are two varieties there's one that's predominantly sweet with a bitter aftertaste and there's one that's predominantly bitter with a sweet aftertaste i suspect the latter is probably more medicinal but this became introduced into the west because japanese companies were looking for non-caloric sweeteners which it contains that's where that sweet principle is and um, this herb, again, is a bile uh, adaptogen that's great as a tea herb, and it is really? easy to oh. grow. 
Um, one last two two other ones I'll just mention really briefly. Oh, yeah. Ashwagandha. Yeah. You can grow potatoes. Excuse me. You can grow tomatoes or peppers. Absolutely. You can grow ashwagandha. And in one year, you get a beautiful root. Um, it probably, you know, it's a it's a semi-tropical plant, so it's not going to survive really yeah. cold winters. It'll, you know, get killed. Although I remember seeing one at Smile Herb Shop in Maryland that was several years old that just kept, you know, it would die back to the root and come back in, in the spring. So if, you, if your yeah. winters aren't too cold, um, it might survive. Easy to grow. And the root is the part used. And ashwagandha is a calming adaptogen. So for people who are uh, anxious, nervous, insomnia, it's lovely. It stimulates thyroid function for people who have hypothyroidism. It acts as an immune amphoteric, helping to re-regulate the immune system, whether it's hypo, hyper, or active, or both. Um, again, lovely, lovely herb. It's used traditionally for to enhance libido in men, enhance fertility in women. And lastly, one other adaptogen, and then we'll get off that topic, is shizandra. And shizandra is actually pretty easy to grow. And... Um, and you get these, there's a farm of at least 10 acres of Shizandra oh, growing really? in Massachusetts. That's just the most amazing. Oh, oh yeah. And oh. the Shizandra the berries are another calming adaptogen, also hepatoprotective activity. Oh, it's an immune so amphoteric. And these are herbs that are just so beneficial in so many ways. And I, I don't, I mean, I could spend... I could spend a half an hour or more talking about each one of these. But the yeah. fact is that there are many of these things, and I absolutely believe there are more to be discovered. And I will finish off by saying one last thing. Generally speaking, in traditional cultures, adaptogen or adaptogenic herbs are not used as simples, meaning a single herb. They're used in combination with other things. And one of the classic groups of herbs that adaptogens are used with are nervines. Also, some people call them nervines. And to me, the queen of nervines oh, yeah. is fresh oat. And I use fresh oat, either as a fresh oat tincture, fresh oat glycerate, and I use it. It is lovely. It is the fresh milky oat. So one week out of the oat's yeah. life cycle, there's this milk stage. You have to harvest it right then, prepare it right then. And it is basically, I use it for people who are burning the candle at the top, the bottom, the middle, the back, <laughs> inside and out, left and right. These people are smooth fried. They are crispy. They have lost their emotional foundation. They're having number 10 reactions to number one problems. And over time, it's a slow acting remedy, but over time, especially with some of your calming adaptogens like a shizandra or ashwagandha, if it's right for that person, it can help to restore that emotional foundation. I, I love fresh oat. And who today, after three years of a pandemic, and all the other stuff yeah. that has been going on couldn't use a little restoration of their emotions. I know, David, it's so true. Actually, many of the herbs that you've mentioned in this very short interview are all really perfect herbs for people to be using. Now, I was really thinking about that, like with the grief relief and the adaptogens and those restorative herbs, you know, they're really a great herb. I don't know if you were doing it consciously and intentionally, but they're such a great group of herbs to be presenting right now in time in history. So that was brilliant. Yeah. They, I, you know, I, I was playing around when I was listening to you. I was, I kept wanting to go, I need to ask him this really challenging question. You 
just pick one herb that's your favorite herb. But you know, I'm not going to do that to you because I know it's like asking somebody to pick their favorite child or something. It's it's almost cruel to ask us that. So I won't do that. But we're sort of we only have a few more minutes, and I did have a couple other questions I just wanted to ask you. You know, one is. Um, you know, where herbalism, as you were mentioning earlier, has just changed so dramatically since we started with, you know, so many incredibly beautiful young herbalists and herb books and courses and classes and gatherings. So it's really exciting to see that. But what do you see personally as maybe some of the challenges? They're very different that was facing us when we were starting, like things like even just finding classes, finding books finding gatherings, finding information, finding good quality herbs, you know, any, all of that was the stuff that we had to focus on to bring forth. But today herbalists have a whole new set of challenges. And I'm just wondering what your perspective might be, like what you see as some of the challenges as herbalism moves forward. Well, obviously I'm looking at it sort of from a kind of a long range perspective and somebody who is a young herbalist today may have very ideas and very different ideas than I do. So I don't, I don't want to speak for anyone. Uh, but I can, again, in my opinion, while I'd say there's a couple of things that are, are worth looking at. Number one, over the intervening for me, it's now been, I think 54 years since I started studying herbal medicine, time flies when you're having fun. So in that time frame. What has happened is certain herbs have become popular, but to a great degree, herbal medicine has not. So what I mean by that is you hear about these sound bites of information. So St. John's wort is the depression herb. Black cohosh is the menopause herb. Saw palmetto is the prostate herb. The only problem with each one of those things I just said is they are wrong, wrong, and wrong. So yes, does St. John's wort help with depression? Yeah, but of the more than 14 types of depression that I look at, it's really, really useful uh -huh. for three of them. And so what the studies show us is St. John's wort is as good as Prozac and Zoloft and things like that, but they only work 40% mm -hmm. of the time. So again, it goes back to treating the person, not the disease. And so we need to get away from these little sound bites of information. And I cannot tell you how many women who I've seen over the years who tell me, oh, yeah, I tried herbs, they don't work. What are they talking about? They tried so, um, um, black cohosh and mm -hmm. it had only marginal effects for their menopausal symptomology. And that's right. But if you took that black cohosh and you yeah. mixed it with chase tree and motherwort and a little bit of licorice and sage, then you're talking about something very different that's going to have a major effect on a broad so number of, of women. So the idea is, is taking herbs out of the realm of this is good for this and getting into that deeper level of understanding how to actually treat people. That, I think, is still not well known. So, yes, I don't get the phone calls anymore. What's that herb, Echikinechia? <laughs> but most people are still looking at it okay. from a Western medical model. And while what I do and a, and a good physician does overlap, for the most part, they're very different paradigms. And I leave them to treat disease. I'll treat people. So that, that I think, is one thing. Um, in addition to that, there are some really super, very big issues, and this goes to, for instance, like the work that United Plan Savers does, which you as a visionary create, help create. I remember yeah. that initial meeting we had at um, um, Phoenicia oh, yeah. Pathwork Center when we talked about creating 
United Plant Savers. And that is that many of our native species have become threatened or endangered. And what we need to start looking at is real sustainability. So I'm not concerned about somebody wildcrafting kudzu in the southeastern United States. Yeah. That would be a good thing. Or dandelion or chickweed or burdock. But I am concerned about people wildcrafting things like trillium, bethroot, which cannot withstand uh, harvesting. Or monotropa uniflora, uh, uh, Indian pipe, ghost pipe, that again, cannot cultivated. So I think that we need to look at creating sustainable, organically cultivated herbs so that we can continue to grow this and continue to expand this so more and more people can access this. We don't want this to be something that's just available to a small number of people. We want this available to everyone, but then we can't be depending for the most part on our native herbs. We have to start looking at cultivation. And in my mind, that means organic cultivation in the right didal, which means the right soil, the right environment. You don't try to grow, um, <laughs> oh, I don't know. Uh, don't try to grow, you know, chaparral in Vermont. Ginseng <laughs> desert, yeah. yeah. So exactly. So I think, I think it really uh, creating sustainability in what we do. And then lastly, um, I, I would say that one other thing is affordability. And because herbalists need to be able to make a right livelihood, so it's not you know about being a poverty consciousness that I can't charge for what I do if that's the way you work. But I think that finding ways to make this available to people, because a lot of people have medical insurance, right. but it doesn't cover herbs. And so how can we make these things is available and affordable to people while also allowing young herbalists, especially, actually make a living to be able to actually live a good life and not have to sit there and, and, and worry about counting their pennies every month just to pay rent mm -hmm. in order to be an herbalist. It can, you know, it's a service profession. And my uncle used to say, by serving, you'll be served. That's true. But we live in a culture that doesn't understand mm -hmm. reciprocity. And so we need to find ways to make this uh, approachable as a profession, but also make it approachable so that nobody mm -hmm. is turned away. And one of my favorite things to do with my patients, some people call them clients, but or patients, is to teach them about what's growing in their backyard, what is available to them, what they can grow in their garden so that they can make some of their own medicines. Wow, David, that's those are just such incredible, Just that was just heart moving to me to hear that. Like There are also things I'm concerned about as well, and you just summed them up and put them in such a beautiful context. Yeah, we're sort of coming to the end of our time. And I, I just wanted to say, you know, you have done so much and had so much influence in the herbal world in this country. And I, I could list a whole long list of things that you've accomplished, but I'm just curious to hear of all the things that you've done. Is there any one particular thing that you're most proud of is that you just, you know, can look back and say, I did done this and feel so good about it, either on a big scale or a personal scale. It doesn't really matter. Um. I would just say two things. Number one, I feel very honored and humbled to be a part of what I would call the American herbal renaissance, you know, kind of from the beginning of herbal medicine, you know, regaining its rightful place. And, you know, I, I, I don't want to go on beyond my time limit, but I would say is that I did a keynote speech at the uh, Florida Herbal Conference some years ago, a wonderful conference put on by Emily, our dear friend, Emily Ruff. And, um, 
I called my, my, my talk, I have a dream. And I started off by saying, you've heard these words before by somebody far more eloquent than I, but I actually have a dream too. And my dream is this, coming from a time when herbal medicine was virtually extinct, I would like to see, hopefully within my lifetime, a time where almost every mom, dad, grandma, grandpa knows basic kitchen herbal medicine for their families, where there are community herbalists in every community and clinical herbalists available in, every, in any clinical setting. Because I actually believe that herbal medicine is a part, not you know the answer, but it's a part of helping to create a sustainable practice in medicine in this country. Because we all know that the uh, American system in medicine is terribly broken and unsustainable and unaffordable. So I, I, I honestly you. believe that. And then lastly, I would say yeah. my students, I am so humbled and appreciative of my students who have taken what I have shared and taken it and created their own schools, written books, helped tens of thousands of people to live better, healthier, happier lives. And most of these people I, I may never meet, I don't know, but just to know that that has passed on and people have taken it and grown it and will continue to do so. Yeah. Into the I feel future. like I just want to stand up and give you a standing ovation, David. Really, you're just so inspiring. You know, even in this just short hour talk with you, I've learned so much. You know, like really, actually, I've learned a lot. Like I, with the nettle seeds, for instance, I've sort of like, you know, I know about them. I've read about them. And, you know, Ryan Drum uses those a lot for uh, stimulants. And I never really found them work as this very stimulating agent. So I usually say, well, people use the nettle seeds, but I haven't really found them effective, you know. But really, honestly, after hearing your story, I have a whole different reverence for them. And I do know people who have some kidney issues. I'm going to try them on them. So, yeah, just so many things. But I just want to say in wrapping up is that one of the things I've always found so inspiring about you is how brilliant you are. You know, like just how you're able to read and discern and, you know, digest information and then let that information flow out so eloquently. But also, what I love about you is that you are so earth orientated. You know, I'll, I'll just never forget in my life all those times that you would just say prayers at those gatherings, you know, just how you just would voice to the spirit, you know, to, to bless the gatherings and bless the people and how you'd have us doing ceremonies and just those kind of earth things. Like when you said, you know, you, you've learned to really listen to the plants. So you bridge that world of the intellect and the earth and you do it in a really beautiful way. And then bring that forth as a gift for all of us. So I really want to thank you for that and just tell you how much I love you. And I'm so glad to be your friend and, you know, look forward to the many, to the long journey ahead. As I said, to the journey to the heart of the green nations, we're all on there a little slower than we used to be, but still laughing and loving life. And thank you so much for joining. And I want to thank all of our listeners too, for joining in with us. And if you want to get in touch with David, we'll have his We'll have his uh, website and information on our website, but you can also go to his herbalstudies.net and connect with David directly. So thank you, sweetie, so much. I love talking to you and have a wonderful day. Thank you, Rosemary. It's been a pleasure. I love you too. I am thankful.